Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Hello and welcome to the Nature Podcast. This week, we'll be finding out about the genetics of a blind fish hearing about some new microbiome research. And we'll be learning how to make a new brain-scanning helmet. This is the Nature Podcast for the 20th of March, 2018. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. In our first story today, I'd like to talk about a strange little fish called Astyanax mexicanus, also known as the Mexican tetra. These fish are found in freshwater rivers and streams in eastern and central Mexico and up into Texas, places like that. Not all of these fish live above ground though, and some isolated populations live in caves beneath the limestone mountains in northeast Mexico. It's a tricky place to live for a fish, as Nicholas Rohner explains. The cave environment is entirely dark, there is no light, so no plants, no photosynthesis, and therefore, at least to our knowledge, there's literally zero food in these caves. Despite the lack of food, tetra populations survive, although they've undergone some fairly extreme changes compared to their surface-dwelling relatives. These cavefish, as they're known, have no eyes and have developed lots of strategies to help them survive in the long periods between the seasonal floods that wash food into the caves. What we found is that, first of all, that most of the cavefish populations that we looked at have an increased appetite. So they would eat much more than surface fish if you give them the opportunity to eat um, as much as they want. And that helps them to gain incredible amount of body fats. They have up to 10 times more body fat. They store their fat everywhere. You find them in the eye socket, you find it in the brain. They have a lot of visceral fat. And um, while the surface fish under a normal diet would not have these effects. Another difference between the two groups is that the cavefish have wildly fluctuating blood glucose levels compared to the surface fish. So they basically have much higher blood sugar levels um, compared to the surface fish after a meal and also after a day fast. And then their blood glucose uh, control is also altered because they're not able to maintain this blood sugar level um, over a longer period of fast. So if you fast them longer, their blood sugar goes down and they're not able to maintain uh, their blood sugar. So it seems like they have a generally dysregulated uh, blood sugar homeostasis. 
So what's going on? Generally speaking, blood sugar levels are regulated by the pancreas. After eating, when blood sugar levels are high, the pancreas releases the hormone insulin. Insulin binds with cells and leads to the uptake of the excess glucose, lowering blood sugar levels. In humans at least, a lot of this happens in the skeletal muscle. In this new work, Nicholas and his colleagues showed that for two cavefish populations with fluctuating blood sugar levels, insulin is being released, but it's impaired in its ability to bind to the skeletal muscle. We found a mutation in the insulin receptor itself. Having this mutation leads to a decrease in binding of insulin and is not as sensitive as the surface form or the unmutated form. It's not a complete loss of function, so there's still some signaling, but it's basically uh, decreased. In humans, the inability of cells to respond to insulin, known as insulin resistance, is often a factor in metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes. The mutation found in the cavefish is identical to one involved in a very severe type of diabetes in humans. However, the fish seem perfectly happy. They live to a similar age to the surface fish and even appear to show fewer signs of age-related decline. So, if this mutation is giving these fish an advantage, why is it not more widespread? We think it comes at a price. And we already see this because we were able to mimic the same mutation in zebrafish. And why zebrafish, again, also they became bigger and faster compared to not having this mutation, they already had some other growth problems. So for example, when we looked at their scales, they were smaller. So it, it somehow comes at a price. Therefore, we believe it may be important if it's all about making it to the next step where the food is very limited, like in a cave environment. But as a regular fish, if you don't really have to, you don't want to go that route. However, we believe because Cavefish had then an additional several thousand years, uh, maybe even hundred thousand years of time to evolve with this mutation. They probably have found cofactors that help them to mitigate the otherwise negative problems that are associated with having this mutation. In trying to understand how cavefish have adapted to survive in such an extreme environment, this single mutation is only a piece of the puzzle. The team showed that cavefish from another population still have high blood sugar after eating, but don't have this altered insulin receptor. They too seem perfectly healthy, and the reasons behind all this are still unclear. However, the dysregulation of blood glucose seems to give all these cavefish an advantage, and there is some interesting convergent evolution at play, with different populations having achieved it by different methods. Quite how the cavefish are able to survive with a phenotype that could be very detrimental in humans is yet to be understood. There's still a lot to learn, says Sylvia Rateau, who's written a News & Views article to accompany the paper. It's a great paper which asks more questions than it gives maybe responses, but it's a great paper that is unanticipated, unexpected. It doesn't make any sense, but still it's there and it's that. It is, of course, tempting to think that this new finding in cavefish will help us in our understanding of human disease, but Sylvia recommends caution. The translation thing into human health, I think it's a really big step. And I think really it has to be considered that obviously uh, this insulin signaling pathway is, is not working exactly the same way in fish and in mammals. Nicholas, though, is a bit more optimistic and thinks that studying nature could give a fresh perspective on human diseases. We always think of phenotypes of diseases as, as a terrible thing, but we, we often forget that many animals actually have evolved very similar phenotypes that we see in, uh, in human patients, like for example, giraffes have high blood pressure as their normal situation because they, they need to get the blood up to the 
up to the head and also these cavefish have high blood sugar uh, hibernating animals are insulin resistant and so there's a lot of variation out there in nature that i think should be more studied if we want to understand also uh, human diseases and i think this is something that is not done a lot and so i hope that at least this study will be informative for sure that was nicholas rona from the stowers institute for medical research in the u.s you also heard from sylvie reto from the paris sackley institute of neuroscience in france both the paper and the news and views article can be found at nature.com nature now everyone knows it's important to take care of your body Here at the Nature Podcast, for example, some of us are making an effort to take the stairs instead of the lift every day. We literally just took the lift down here about 10 minutes ago. Okay, I'm making an effort. I'm not necessarily doing very well at it. But anyway, it's not just physical exercise that's important. This week, I've been hearing about our microbiomes, the communities of microbes that live on and in our bodies, and how they could play an important role in our health. Take commensal bacteria in our intestines. They help us digest food, they produce nutrients, they're potentially important for our immune systems, and they seem to vary depending on lifestyle factors like food, exercise and health. In fact, some studies have observed that particular patterns of gut bacteria are associated with medical conditions. Take diabetes, for example, which Ben was talking about earlier. For a while, it looked like people with type 2 diabetes had different microbiomes than people without – and researchers assumed that this was due to the condition itself. But it turned out there was a confounding factor, as Lisa Meyer explains. The, the very first example was the anti-diabetic drug metformin. So earlier studies actually reported that there is a gut microbiome signature shift for type 2 diabetic patients. But the signal turned out to be due to metformin, which is the leading drug against type 2 diabetes, and not the disease itself. Lisa was interested in this result because it was somewhat unexpected. While drugs such as antibiotics are known to have a big impact on a person's microbiome, metformin is not an antibiotic. Its main effect was thought to be on the human liver, so you wouldn't necessarily expect the drug to have an impact on commensal gut bacteria. And of course this raised the question whether this is only restricted to metformin or whether other non-antibiotic drugs would also have an impact on human gut commensals. Lisa and her colleagues began to study whether various drugs might have an impact on any of the many bacteria commonly found in human guts. So we wanted to test a lot of different drugs and a lot of representative human gut commensals. So what we did is we did a direct screen where we assessed the effects of 1,200 drugs on 40 human gut commensals in one-to-one. So we always assessed the effect of one drug on one commensal. The results actually were quite surprising. Of course, we find that a lot of antibiotics inhibit at least one strain from our selection. But what was more surprising actually was the human-targeted drugs. For them, we find that 24% inhibit at least one strain. Almost a quarter of the non-antibiotic drugs that they tested, that's drugs that aren't intended to target bacteria, were shown to have an impact on one or more of the kinds of bacteria that live inside us. Of course, the gut microbiome is a complex community of microbes, so we still need to find out whether these effects hold true in the body as well as in the lab. At the moment, we just screened in pure culture, so in isolation. But the picture might look way different in bacterial communities. There might be, for example, that some bacteria secrete an antidote and, of course, will protect everyone in the community. These kind of effects 
So cross-sensitivity, um, cross-protection, these kind of effects we would miss in our screen. And of course, the results have to be verified and tested in vivo, like in animal models, pharmacokinetic studies, and also clinical trials. And of course, also better mechanistic understanding would be very helpful. At the moment, the mechanisms by which non-antibiotic drugs might be influencing bacteria are a bit of a mystery. For example, for antipsychotics, they are supposed to target serotonin and dopamine receptors in the brain. It's not very obvious on what's the target in bacterial cells. All of these unknowns raise some worrying prospects, as Lisa explains. There are several aspects of the study that are worrisome. Of course, the fact that a lot of drugs that we take on a daily basis have an effect on our gut microbiome. But I guess the most worrisome aspect is also that we find that antibiotic-resistant mechanisms are shared between antibiotics and human-targeted drugs. What Lisa and her team noticed is that bacteria that tend to be resistant to impact from various human-targeted drugs also tended to be resistant to antibiotics. Now, they don't know why this correlation exists, but it could mean that certain non-antibiotic drugs could increase bacterial resistance to antibiotics, which is something that clearly needs investigating. But whether or not that's the case, the influence of non-antibiotic drugs on human gut microbiomes is something that could affect a lot of research and will undoubtedly be the subject of a lot more study. Well, thank you there, Sharmini. That was Lisa Meyer from the European Molecular Biology Laboratory in Heidelberg. You can find the paper at nature.com nature. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Davide Castelvecchi for the news chat, where we'll be hearing about the winner of this year's Abel Prize and children's drawings of scientists. First, though, it's research highlight time with Ellie Mackay. Scientists are shining a light on fermentation, literally. The technique of optogenetics, using laser light to activate neurons, has long been used in neuroscience. But now, scientists have developed a different use for these precise light beams, switching on yeast fermentation. The metabolic pathway behind fermentation requires incredibly fine control, and the relevant proteins involved need to be produced in the yeast at the right time and in the correct order. This means the process is not particularly efficient at an industrial scale. Now, Scientists are using the optogenetic laser technique to activate the production of these proteins, using a pulsed light to induce metabolic enzyme expression. This allows switching instantly between the growth and production phases in the yeast, leading to automated and more efficient yields of biosynthetic products, like biofuels. So industrial production may one day be a laser light show. If you found that story illuminating, Head on over to nature for more. If you think that modern art stinks, it turns out you're right. A team of researchers at University College London has been sticking their noses into the art world. With modern artworks increasingly made of materials like PVC and acetate, curators need a new way to assess a piece's condition without damaging it. Well, it turns out the plastics emit odorous molecules as they degrade and these can be detected in the air. The team uses a vapour-sensitive catchment strip to trap the gases to detect an artwork's odour profile. 
The technique has been tested on some smelly sculptures at the Tate Modern Gallery in London, with the results showing the scent signatures of the pieces related strongly to their age and degradation levels. The method could therefore be used to detect and prevent decay in valuable modern artworks. To read more, sniff out a copy of Angavanta Shami International Edition. There are various ways you can scan a brain. For example, there's the CT scan, which uses X-rays to see the brain structure, fMRI scans, which reveal changing blood flow in different parts of the brains, and MEG scans, which reveal the electrical activity of neurons. MEG stands for magnetoencephalography, which is easy for me to say, and it's been around for decades. Now, though, the technique is being improved upon. Reporter Noah Baker has been speaking to Matt Brooks about the new developments and started off by getting a description of how MEG actually works. Your brain's electrical, um, so it communicates with itself and with the rest of your body um, by the passage of very small electrical currents. Those electrical currents in your brain generate magnetic fields um, and those magnetic fields persist outside the head. So in MEG, what we do is we measure the magnetic fields outside the head that are generated by the brain. And then we use those magnetic fields to reconstruct images of current flow through the brain. So in other words, it's a measure of brain function. So it's a measure of what your brain's doing, basically. Tell me a little bit about the machines that are conventionally used to do MEG. The conventional machines are cryogenically cooled. They're, they're, they're very large. Um, they look like a, a sort of huge helmet that's done a meter and a half, two meters above um, the subject. And, um, and the subject has to sit with, effectively with their head inside this, this helmet. And you have to keep very still, um, even a five millimeter movement um, of your head relative to the scanner can make the data unusable. And so you've tried to approach these limitations to try to tackle these limitations by creating a new form of MEG. Tell me what you were trying to solve. Our, our approach was to say, well, can we turn this massive machine into effectively something that can we be worn on the head like a hat? Uh, that was made possible. There's been rapid progress in the area of quantum sensors, and in particular, a very exciting new quantum sensor called an optically pumped magnetometer, or an OPM. And what our aim was, was to integrate those sensors into our, our helmet. Um, and because they were small and lightweight, they could be integrated into a helmet in such a way as to allow the subject to move around whilst they were being scanned. And so kind of fundamental to this is this helmet. I've seen pictures of it. I, I have to admit, I, I laughed when I first saw it. It looks <laughs> yeah. a little bit like a luchador's mask with these sensors coming out the back, which are sort of predator-esque. Tell me a little bit about how you make that helmet and how you attach these sensors into so, it. So some, some people say the helmet reminds them of Phantom of the Opera. Um, other people say Game of Thrones. <laughs> I've never seen Game of Thrones. I don't know what, it, what, it, what it's about. Um, so the approach that we took, the helmet itself is 3D printed, and it's 3D printed based on an individual's MRI scan. And you've made this prototype. Tell me, does it work? Is it going to give you the kinds of readouts that you would get from a conventional MEG machine? The results that it gives are actually better. So because we're getting closer to the scalp, we're getting an increase in sensitivity. We've shown that it gives uh, a, an increase in spatial precision. We can more accurately find out which parts of the brain are engaged in a particular task. 
And the, the really important thing is, actually, we can do that whether or not the person was moving around. So your machine uses this helmet or this sort of mask that's based on a 3D print of a scan of one individual person. So you can get these great readings, but at the moment it works with this one person. And I'm assuming you want to be able to use this machine with more than one person. That doesn't sound like it's very transferable to other situations. I would stress it is a prototype helmet. We obviously realised that it would be completely impractical to build something like that for every single person that we scan with this thing. Um, So um, our future research is looking at making that helmet much more practical for scanning kids and for scanning adults, actually. We want to turn it into something that's much more similar to a sort of bike helmet, something like that. So one of the big advantages of this technology that you've developed is that a subject is able to move while they wear it. Now, that movement can also cause some problems when it comes to getting your readings, especially with relation to the Earth's magnetic field. So one of the problems is if you move a magnetic field sensor through the Earth's magnetic field, it obviously detects that movement, so it detects the change in the Earth's magnetic field as you move or rotate through it. And those signals are much larger than the signals that we get from the brain. So we need to be able to remove that Earth's magnetic field almost completely in order to allow the subject to move. And that's one of the key pieces of technology that's actually been developed here. So what we've got is a set of electromagnetic coils. Now, those coils sit either side of the subject, they're a reasonable distance away, so the subject's not claustrophobic, but what those coils do is to um, remove the effect of the Earth's magnetic field around the subject. And they do that in a 40 by 40 by 40 centimetre box. So you are sort of creating, you know, this 40 by 40 by 40 centimetre cube of sort of magnetic dead space. Exactly, yeah, that's right. And your sensors will work so long as they're within that space. So I should say that that 40 by 40 by 40 centimetre box is, is actually limited only by the fact that we had to build this thing around an existing cryogenic meg system. We could make that box bigger, and we hope that by future iterations, future developments on the coil technology, um, we're going to be able to not just allow people to move inside this box, hopefully they'll be able to walk around. And so that brings in the possibility of doing things like virtual reality. So you can imagine wearing a virtual reality headset whilst also having an OPM Meg system on your head. After speaking with Matt, I wanted to gauge just how his machine could really have an impact, both in research or in a clinical setting. So I reached out to Sylvain Bayet from McGill University in Montreal. Sylvain specialises in brain imaging, in particular MEG. If we have the joint benefits of high spatial and temporal resolution of state-of-the-art MEG and combined with the uh, ability for the participants and the researcher to express and observe um, different body postures, that's a very big uh, leap uh, forward in terms of exploring more the relationship between brain and behavior, uh, brain and body movements, all of these being very important and significant scientific questions um, that were actually uh, constrained by the uh, reality of brain imaging scanners uh, so far. Sylvain also referenced the cost of the machine. This new MEG is expected to be significantly cheaper than conventional machines. I think the benefit, uh, both in terms of allowing more body movement, 
um, and also in terms of uh, cost reduction, at least expected cost reduction, is uh, is just gigantic. And um, I think uh, that makes this uh, the outcome of this research and this publication very special and a, and a milestone in in brain imaging technology. That was Sylvain Bayet at McGill University in Montreal talking to Noah Baker. Before him, you heard from Matt Brooks of the University of Nottingham. You can find the paper at nature.com forward slash nature. And we've also got a video on this new finding. So if you want to see the Phantom of the Opera style Meg helmet for yourself, head over to youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Finally then this week, it's time for the news chat. And I'm joined in the studio by Davide Castelvecchi, one of the reporters here at Nature. Thanks for joining us, Davide. Thank you for having me. Right then, well, our first story today is about a recently awarded mathematics prize. Uh, Davide, maybe you could tell our listeners what it is and who's won it. It is the Abel Prize and it is awarded every year since 2003. It's been modelled after the Nobel Prize, but as most of our, our listeners probably know, there is no Nobel Prize for mathematics. And the winner this year is Robert Langlands who has semi-mythological status among mathematicians because he came up with what a lot of people regard as a sort of grand unified theory of mathematics. Yes, and that seems like a heck of a thing to come up with, a grand unifying theory. And maybe you can uh, explain to our listeners just a little bit about what that is. It depends who you ask, and it depends in what uh, historical period. So he came up with the original set of conjectures in 1967 and his idea was that there would be some kind of hidden correspondence some kind of uh, way of translating problems from one field of mathematics into another one and specifically it was from algebra and number theory into analysis so a little bit of a rosetta stone then if i can be reductive Yes, exactly. And, and it's, it's a Rosetta Stone that allows you to go from one language to another, which means that sometimes a problem that is very hard to solve in one particular branch of mathematics, uh, all of a sudden you have this kind of teleportation mechanism that transports you into a different branch of mathematics where maybe the problem becomes solvable. And, and what's that been used for then? So first of all, it was greatly expanded and it's become like beyond recognition. Like there's parts of the so-called Langlands program that Langlands himself admits he doesn't understand. And there are some that he is openly against. But people have found uh, inspiration from, from his work to, for example, uh, prove conjectures that were actually pre-existing. So there, there's been... Uh, some open problems, some of them very important, that turned out to be special cases, you know, particular cases of his conjectures. And one of them is the famous Fermat's last theorem. So, Davide, this uh, this award for Robert Langlands then is clearly in recognition for his work, and he's been working on it for, for a very long time. Yes, on and off since 1967 at least. Uh, he was a very young uh, visiting professor at, at the Institute of Advanced Study, and he approached Andre Veil, who at the time was a star of number theory, and Langland said, oh, I would like to tell you about these ideas I have, and, and he started you know, basically chasing him down the hallway. And, and Veil said, why don't you just write me a letter and, and put it in writing? Which, which basically it was a, a quick way to get rid of him, right? And then Langlands took him literally, and he went and wrote a 17-page letter, which he prefaced saying that if you're willing to read it, 
as pure speculation, I would appreciate that. If not, I'm sure you have a wastebasket handy. Well, clearly it wasn't thrown away then, and, and here we are. I mean, where does Robert Langland stuck up then in, in, in the kind of mathematical world? His ideas have dominated a number of branches of mathematics, and, and his name pops up everywhere. And it pops up in particular because of the depth of these connections that he, he first unveiled. Is he the, the greatest mathematician alive? I don't know. He's, you know. Some people would probably put him in their top 10. Um, but a deserved winner nonetheless. I think if you ask most mathematicians, you know, they'll say that it's hard to find a mathematician who is alive now who was so influential as Langlands was. Well, Davide, let's move on to the US for our second story this week. And it's one that suggests that children's perspectives on what a scientist looks like might be changing. Yeah, so it's a, this is kind of a, a meta-study. What the researchers did was they looked at how children represent scientists. So you ask kids to doodle a scientist and you see what happens and, and you count how many kids draw a female scientist and how many kids draw a male. And they looked at sci- studies uh, from the 1960s all the way up to 2016. I might not be quite that old, but I reckon that if young Benjamin had been asked to draw a scientist, there's probably a good chance he would have drawn a male in a lab coat with frizzy hair. Yeah, it, and it probably is true that a lot of people, a lot of children especially, will just go by what they've seen, by by the kind of stereotypes they've been exposed to. But interestingly, I mean, it, it, it seems like uh, there's some very slow progress. So uh, in the 1960s and 1970s, it was virtually all children who drew a male scientist. And then if you go to the more recent studies, it's gone to 72% uh, from almost 100%. So it's very slow progress, but nonetheless, now one time out of three or four, the child will draw a female scientist. Well, Davide, while that's potentially the start of a positive trend, it's not all good news. It's very interesting if you look at how these studies break the data down by age. And and it seems that as the child grows, their preference for for drawing male scientists increases. So that maybe they start out less biased. The more they age, the more they, they tend to draw males. Have the researchers behind it offered any ideas as to why this shift in young children might be? They do speculate that there is a, a slow shift in perception because we, we do see uh, women in science now in the media and, and in television shows and so on. And representation of women has improved in science, certainly since the 1960s. The question is, um, do we have you know, lingering biases that cause children to have skewed perceptions, which also in turn leads maybe fewer girls to go into science in the first place. Thanks, Davide. For more on these stories, don't forget to head over to nature.com slash news. And talking of news, we've got some more exciting science stories for you over on our YouTube channel, as well as the Meg Helmet story that we mentioned earlier. We've got a film presented by Lizzie Gibney about the wonder of mazes. Well, what are mazes? You're going to have to go to youtube.com forward slash nature video channel to find out. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. Um, And if you have, don't forget to tell your friends, tell your neighbours and tell the world via a review or some stars on your podcast provider of choice. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. See you all next time. (laughs) 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.